The following podcast is produced or sponsored by a community member. The content, views, and opinions expressed are those of the participants and do not reflect those of the Belmont Media Center or the Town of Belmont. BMC welcomes your comments. Call us at 617-484-2443 or email us at access at belmontmedia.org. Welcome to the Hopeless Fancast, the podcast that loves fans as much as fans love pop culture. I'm your host, Eileen Maxson. Before you listen to our show, be pre-warned. There will be spoilers. For today's episode, we're going to be discussing the TV show Hannibal. And my guest is Shelby. Hi, Shelby. How are you doing? Hello, I'm doing very well. Thank you for asking me on. Of course. Thank you so much for coming on. We're happy to have you. I asked this question of everyone to start off. What do you love about Hannibal? Oh, there is a lot to enjoy about the show. And I was thinking about this a little bit from the time that you asked me that we were going to do this, trying to narrow it down because it's like, oh, I could talk about the actors because the actors are top notch. Mm-hmm. The writing is strong. The food all looks delicious. The the action, the storylines. And as I worked my way through all of those pieces, I realized that it was the production as a whole because it's kind of that classic story within a story in that we're being fed what is basically a horrible story but it's wrapped so beautifully the way Hannibal's dishes are horrors but he has prepared them so wonderfully that you go back for more. It's true. That's definitely my favorite part of the show too. The fact that you have these atrocities and yet they are made so beautiful and it's very much the the aesthetic of the whole thing and the aesthetic of Hannibal, that it is someone who is very refined and very cultured. And it's putting this gorgeous veneer on something that is totally terrifying. Yep. So who's your favorite character? My favorite character is Will Graham, which I have to admit is interesting because I was originally introduced to this universe with Silence of the Lambs. I think that's the way a lot of us came into it. That movie was amazing. And after Silence of the Lambs, I I was a voracious reader, so I picked up Red Dragon. Mm. And at the time when I saw the movie and my interests in terms of characters and everything like that, I, of course, wanted more story about Clarice. And Clarice is not in Red Dragon. So I was like, okay, well, Jack Crawford's here. Mm -hmm. And I was reading Jack Crawford and, and this Will Graham guy comes out of kind of nowhere and I'm kind of like wait a minute why are you replacing Clarice you know I I wanted Clarice and then I was like well okay I'll read for Jack Crawford and as I was reading Red Dragon and I was reading more about Jack Crawford I was like wow Jack really is not a nice guy no he's not so I remember being extremely disappointed (laughs) all the way around so needless to say I set Red Dragon down and and I never went back to it or really any of the other Hannibal books I will admit that and then I became peripherally aware that that this television production was being done and it was being done on NBC and I don't have a lot of faith in NBC mm. in their telling in a, a complete story, you know, because they'll drop shows very quickly. So I didn't want to get invested. So I didn't. I actually did not get exposed to the television show until tw- uh, early 2017 when it was pointed out to me and I found it in its entirety on, um, on a streaming site. 
I'll just put it that way. So I did have the added benefit of being able to watch the show start to finish without a lot of interruption. I will admit, I'm not sure how it would have played to me in a week to week format. Yeah, there's a lot about the show that, well, it's all about perception, where you think things are one way, and then they're flipped on their head and you realize that it's completely different than you thought it was. And if I may go back to the production strength, the production quality of the show, Mm -hmm. there are so many nuances layered into the show and and they come at all levels you know it's not just the acting and writing and directing but the set design the costuming yes the the smallest presentations there's so much nuance layer that you could lose that week to week especially with everything you know the big stuff that's like right in your face so being able to watch it as kind of an end-to-end I was able to hold on to all those nuanced threads and see the picture a little more clearly I think than I would have I personally would have in a week-to-week format I've noticed that too that there's just a such subtlety when it comes to what we're being shown that I can totally see how that would be lost and kind of harder to pick up when there is that much time between episodes season three for instance much of season three is fantastic but a lot of it gets kind of buried because the first couple of episodes of season three were just so painfully slow all I want to know is did Will survive and did Abigail survive like that's pretty much all I need to know and we get a whole episode of of Hannibal in Europe which was cool in its own way but it still kind of left me and I think left a lot of people saying but but we don't know about Will yet but yeah the the aesthetics of the whole thing and the way that they use it to enhance the story like you said is is so masterful I'm thinking about how the way that people dress changes I mean, Hannibal, of course, Hannibal's always Hannibal. He's always wearing the most marvelous and at some point jaw-droppingly, I can't even think of the right word for it. Um, (laughs) Because it's like he makes every single thing work, even when he's wearing something that you wouldn't wish on your worst enemy. While Will starts off very scattered and very disheveled, Mm -hmm. and then you can see how what he's wearing just kind of coalesces into this kind of strong presence at the same time that he and his psyche is like coalescing into into this this stronger character. And then Alana is actually really interesting in that way too because after what happens to her at the end of season two, she changes. And the way that she changes, she starts dressing like Hannibal. Her her color palette becomes a lot more aggressive. Yes, it does. And she becomes very, very stylish and stylized in a way that she just wasn't before. Her character changes and becomes a lot more ruthless and sharper. Right. And her fashion really reflects that. Yes, definitely. That, like I said, that's part of the production within the production is those costume changes. And I want to say it was EW did that wonderful article where they discussed Hannibal's fashions. Mm -hmm. And that particular individual noted that when Hannibal had his tie on and all his, you know, was all prim and proper, he was, he he had his man suit completely on. Right. And that it was when he didn't have a tie on that you had to start worrying. That's true. Yeah. And it is true. Yeah. There, there are all those little cues. Yeah. All those little cues are in there. Those are the kind of subtle things that you could lose with the distance and the timing of a traditional television viewing schedule. And I, if I'm, if I can, I wanted to circle back to what you said about the beginning of season three because. Sure. 
I don't disagree with you that if I was trying to watch season three, especially coming down off the strength of season two, the end of season two, especially as a Will fan and everything that happened at the end of season two, and then hitting season three and that first episode would have been like just a cold water shock. Like, what what are we doing here, you know? And I would have been in the same kind of point of frustration. You know, that's all well and good. Tell me, what happened to Jack? What happened to Alana? What happened to Will? Why isn't Will with Hannibal? Move along, move along. Right. Now, because of the way I watched it, and being able to watch it that way, I, I was able to go back and better appreciate that first episode for what it was. It was a little bit of a palate cleanser and a little bit of a, a cue up that direction was going to change a little bit. But it was also starting to really adjust the lens on Hannibal from the Hannibal we knew in season one and season two to the Hannibal of season three and Hannibal's own maturation for his own character arc of where he was going in season three and towards the man that we all were introduced to back in Silence of the Lambs. Yeah, that that's a really good point that the Hannibal that we see at first in seasons one and two is still a lot different from the Hannibal that, you know, most people are, are familiar with from the movie. That's my personal interpretation on the whole journey that Will goes on. And that Will himself even says, of course, he says it to Hannibal, but I think he's saying it to the audience. I had to get to know you. And those first, what is it, six episodes, I believe, before Will and, and Hannibal catch back up, those first first six episodes were the audience's journey with Will in a way. It was Will's journey to learn about Hannibal. It was the audience's journey to learn about Hannibal and learn about the man we were now going to move forward with. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, you know, again, it goes back to perception that there's a lot that we see about Hannibal in the beginning that is part of the person suit. Right. Was his man suit. Right, right. And you don't really understand completely. I mean, you know, you go into it knowing, okay, this is Hannibal this is, you know, hello, Clarice, and I ate his liver with some fava beans and a nice candy. You already know yep. that he's the bad guy, but you kind of see in the, the first season, you see kind of the same, you know, the same Hannibal that everybody else is seeing, except in some in some parts where you do see you, you do see the killer in Hannibal. And then the killer in Hannibal comes out, you know, entirely at by the end of season two. And then being able to go back and really understand, like, now you've seen the monster. Let's go back and show you the man, the man who is, you know, at the core of all of it. In that respect, those those episodes are really important. Being able to uh, to not just dismiss Hannibal as someone that, oh, well, we know who that is, we know what that is, but also being able to say, well, yeah, but here's where he came from, and here's, here's why he became what he is. Yep. I think I would layer on to that, that season one of the show, Hannibal, we are getting to know Will Graham and Brian Fuller's version of Will Graham because he is different from who he is in Red Dragon. He's a, he's a different character. There are some other elements layering in there. So we're learning about Will Graham and the focus is kind of on him, but we're, we're meeting Hannibal and up until really the episode, uh, see, I wrote it down, 1-8 where he tangles with Tobias and he's also putting together his dinner party. The Hannibal in episodes one through seven is his person suit. Right. 
that is who we as the audience are seeing. That's who Jack's seeing, who Will's seeing, Alana's seeing. That is Hannibal fully in his person suit. And then Fuller gives us a flash of the Predator in season seven. Or not season seven, we wish. In episode (laughs) eight. Where not only does he show Hannibal sourcing, but he does something interesting there. I'm sorry, I'm going to shoot off because one of the, the one of the, your questions was talking about music. And this is my favorite use of music in the entire show mm-hmm. is when he's doing that montage. And we know what Hannibal is doing with his Rolodex and his recipe cards. Right. We know. And, and we see him cheerfully putting pieces in his refrigerator. And the music that's layered over top of that is this kind of lighthearted jaunty, almost feel-good music. Right. So even that presentation, the way Fuller presented that was, yeah, he's off doing this horrible thing, but you know, it's kind of upbeat and it's he's just being a bit of a lad. Right. You know? That's the way it's presented. We don't really see the, the predator flash until Tobias attacks him. And even then, as an audience member, as a watcher, you're able to go, well, Tobias came to him. Tobias attacked him. Hannibal was defending himself. You, you, you can still kind of hit into that comfort zone. Explain it away to yourself. Right. Hannibal's just protecting himself. And especially when it's reinforced with when Will comes through the door and Will apologizing to Hannibal for drawing him into his world. So right. it's reinforced. It's further reinforced. Yeah, Hannibal did this horrible thing, but you know, he he had to. It's not until we actually really meet Bedelia and we see Hannibal and Bedelia's interactions and Bedelia sends up the first real test balloon or, or it might be simultaneously with Will making that discovery when Hannibal saves the man's life with the kidney. Right. And we see Will start to turn his wheels. But Bedelia really calls it out when she uses the words person suit. That that kind of makes you stop, or at least that made me stop as an audience and go, oh, wait a minute. Yeah, I, I, we've been fed an image, just like Hannibal feeds everyone around him an image. Right. So we get flagged for that. And then it continues on through season two. And then and, and even season two has kind of an offset because, again, the way the production is done, Hannibal's horrible. We know Hannibal's horrible, but Mason Verger takes it to an entirely another level. Yeah. So you're distracted by Mason. Mason's the big bad. Right. It's not until the end of season two and that whole train wreck. Yes. <laughs> that, er, that the wheels come off the wagon, the person suit is stripped off, and we almost have to be reintroduced to Hannibal in season three. Right. And I think that's what those episodes do, those early episodes do, both for the audience and for Will. Right. Well, one of the things that's really interesting, going back to the, the idea of perception, is that the way that the seasons are structured, it's like season one, you get just a little bit of a glimpse at the end of what was going on behind the scenes. But then in season two, you get to see Hannibal shoving Abigail's ear down Will's throat. And you get to see when when Will starts getting his his memories back, mm-hmm. then the audience is also getting to see those things that Will was denied and getting to see exactly, you know, what Hannibal was doing behind the scenes while we were, you know, watching Will losing time. And then the same sort of thing 
happens in season three, because in season two, you know, the thing that was going on behind the scenes is that Hannibal had Abigail and he had her the whole time hidden away so that he could surprise Will and the three of them could run off together. Whereas in season three, after all of that has fallen apart, you have these times when you see what it was like for Abigail. And, you know, you see Abigail and Hannibal setting up the crime scene so that it looked like she had been killed. So it has that that sort of thing where we were all fooled in, in season two into thinking that Abigail was dead, along with Will. And then now, once we knew that she wasn't, and then she was. Uh, <laughs> real. Yeah, yeah. I actually, at one point, had a bit of an argument with someone on, I think it was Tumblr, after season one, and it was, it seemed like Abigail had died, and I was totally convinced that Abigail had died. And this other person was like, no, there's absolutely no way that Abigail is dead, because Hannibal would never do that. Um, <laughs> so it's... Uh- yeah, it was it was this brilliant where it's like, you know, yeah, Abigail was alive and then he kills her. Like, you know, I can just imagine them going, yes, I, I was right. And then what? What? No. Um, <laughs> yeah. So. So yeah, so it's 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 really interesting how how Brian Fuller does this, how he hides things and then he shows mm-hmm. you them. And then kind of at the same time when he's showing you one thing, he's hiding other stuff. Yep. So yeah, it's just I love Brian Fuller as an artist as far as that goes because his visual aesthetic and he does this in his other TV shows too that you have the these very beautiful things that are hiding things that are profound and even scary. Like in American Gods, he does a lot of that. But and also, you know, he doesn't he doesn't spare any of the characters. Yes. By the time you get through the entire series end to end, in my estimation, there are only three characters who are truly completely spared outside of the Greek chorus. The Greek chorus being Jemmy Price and Brian Zeller. It would have included Beverly Katz, but she wasn't right. exactly spared. Yep. But the only three characters who are truly spared this fate are Molly, Walter, and Reba. Right. They are your absolute end-to-end innocence. Everybody else gets gray. Right. They do good things. They do horrible things. They do things that you can relate to, you know, for their motivations you can relate to. They do things that are so far beyond the pale that, you know, it's beyond comprehension. And so I think that's part of what makes Hannibal sometimes a very difficult show to watch is that you can't get comfortable in any one skin, if you will. You you can't look at any one character and go, ah, they're the hero. They're the protagonist because it just it keeps changing and Fuller keeps moving the pieces and moving the goalposts. And, you know, Will is my favorite character. And in season one, you feel heartbreak for him because he is trying so hard not to to give in to the darkness in his head and he keeps getting pushed and then he keeps getting failed by everyone who should have had his back. It's true. And so, you know, you can look at him as the victim because he, in so many ways, he truly is the victim. But then by season two, when you see him kind of break, but then move to put himself together, Mm -hmm. then he starts to do some extremely questionable things and make decisions ruthless decisions and ruthless choices so now he's no longer the you know the true hero archetype 
or what you would call that archetype. Mm -hmm. So he doesn't fit that anywhere. Jack slides up and down the scale constantly. Yeah. There is a certain innocence to Bella and her story is truly tragic, but even Bella has her, her foibles. Well, there's a, there's a certain amount of pride to Bella, which I think is really what makes the, where she comes to Hannibal and has taken all of her morphine. It really gives an interesting kind of layer to that in the sense that, like, I, I remember when, when I saw that happen, when I watched that episode for the first time, I was, absolutely convinced that that was the worst thing that Hannibal had ever done. That betrayal of trust in sitting there and letting her die and letting her have this perfect end and then dragging her back was just so horrible. But there there was still that level to it at which the reason why it really made it so horrible was because Bella had her pride and that was the, the strongest thing that she had. And Hannibal just stripped it away from her by, you know, flipping a coin and deciding upon that, that he was going to deny her. And couching it in the sense of, you know, well, Jack is my friend and I couldn't let you go without letting him say goodbye, so on and so forth. It's like, no, that's totally not what was going on. What was going on was that he saw that one strength in Bella and then just took it away. That was that was a really harsh thing to watch. It was a harsh thing to watch. I'm trying to think of my own, because I, I agree with, a lot of what you said, definitely. But I, I do feel like there may have been another layer of motivation to to Hannibal's choice. I just can't put my finger on it right at the moment. Maybe I'll come back to it. Okay. <laughs> so let's see. We went off on those tangents just off of who's my favorite character, Will Graham. Yeah, that's fine. You know, it's, it's all about the conversation. You mentioned the music, though. The music is, again, one of the amazing things that they do with this show. Yes. There's like the times when the music is very refined. Whoever scored this has a passion for Chopin because most of it's the music is Chopin. And in particular, it's it's uh, this one piece that I'm very fond of where you have this kind of prelude that's very light and very airy. And then it transitions from that into something that's very kind of dark and driving. And the funny thing is that they never get to that dark and driving part. They only do the prelude. Here, my turn to have a question for you. Oh, go for it. What do you think of the choice that... And it's, you know, it's, it's highlighted in the show. What do you think of the choice that Hannibal actually prefers the harpsichord versus the piano? Oh, wow. Well, he talks about that at one point that I'm trying to remember exactly what he said about that. Uh, he was talking to Alana and it was something about how the harpsichord, you don't really have much leeway as far as volume goes, that the harpsichord is all about plucking strings as opposed to about striking them. And you can strike strings at a lot more, you kind of have a lot more chromatics as far as as far as far the sound goes. Whereas when you play the harpsichord, it's very, it's hard to have like piano harpsichord and then forte harpsichord because it's all just plucking the strings. Yeah, so I don't know. I mean, you know, it's uh, the harpsichord is very much a, a more Baroque instrument. And, you know, Hannibal is a lot more Baroque. Definitely. And I mean, I guess a lot of what 
makes, you know, Hannibal's person suit, too, is that he has just this kind of even keel. He almost never raises his voice. His clothing is usually pretty uniform in its outrageousness. Mm -hmm. Um, So so I guess there's kind of the idea that there is beauty. There's a, a, a consistent beauty at the loss of I want to say at the loss of depth, but, you know, that doesn't really, really work because Hannibal, even in his person suit, is a very deep person. Yeah, those are my thoughts. They're kind of scattered. I don't know. What do you think about it? Okay. Um, when I first read read the question and was thinking about the music, I was tossed back to a, I can't remember if it was an article or a video. It might have been a YouTube video mm. that I was watching. And I'm sorry, I, I can't quote it to send you to it to to pull it from so you may have to trim this out but (laughs) basically it was a discussion on the importance of music in horror films and the way that the soundtrack the way that the writers for that music will pitch that music to tap into the almost unconscious disquiet that is in us all and that that's part of what makes the entire experience of a horror film as strong a reaction as it can get out of the audience because you're almost being driven also by the music by the soundtrack at a level that you're not aware of so my thoughts on it between the harpsichord and the piano is the piano is kind of a softer sound mm-hmm. it's more comforting lulling coaxing it can be melancholy and i use that word specifically for a reason i'll get back to it um thoughtful mm-hmm. the harpsichord everything you said baroque and beautiful and maybe it's just me but think about it it has a sharp tang to it and it's very you don't relax when you're listening to it you can hear the beauty of the music but there's just that underlying it's like one small step away from nails on a chalkboard right and i I don't say that to disparage harpsichords they're beautiful instruments but they do have that that sharpness as opposed to a piano so i find it to circle back i find it interesting that when we see first see hannibal in italy after he has It's so weird to use the word suffered with Hannibal, but after he has suffered the heartbreak with Will and the destruction of his family and everything like that, and he's playing the melancholy piano. Oh, that's interesting. So, you know, multi-layers. Like I said, I found the harpsichord a particularly interesting choice for Hannibal just because it helps kind of almost set that uneasy tone. Like, oh, this is beautiful music and I should be listening to it and embracing it, but there's just that sort of something in the back back of your head that's like can't let you let your guard down yeah I, I i totally get that it is very kind of creepy like it almost makes me think of like spiders mm-hmm. and you know exactly. it, it has that little or even like i think crabs might be uh more like it how when crabs walk you know it's that little of of their their feet and it kind of has that same kind of tapping quality to it there's also uh hannibal's other favorite instrument the theremin which is interesting because you know theremins are used a lot for horror movie soundtracks (laughs) Uh, there you go yeah yeah 
I'm almost wondering if that's Brian Fuller breaking the fourth wall just a little bit. That very well could be. Something that's also interesting about the soundtrack is how when it is scary, you have that percussion, that like arrhythmic percussion that is great because it being arrhythmic, you don't know when the next sound is going to come. You don't know what the next sound is going to be. So it's very unsettling. And they use that uh, when Will is seeing the raven stag, when he's investigating a murder scene, you know, stuff like that. You mm-hmm. have that kind of, of soundtrack. Again, it, it is very much a, uh, a horror movie thing that what we hear is so important with what we perceive. That that whole thing is just really well done. And once again, it's another layer onto the production of how to keep, and you used a fantastic word there I'd been reaching for and, and failed to grab, unsettled. It was an, It's another aspect where the production as a whole, the picture as a whole, keeps the audience unsettled. It's true, because you're never sure of anyone's intentions, and that goes for the people who created the show, too. You're <laughs> yep. never really sure what it is. The story within the story. Exactly. Whether or not you trust Brian Fuller <laughs> uh, <laughs> at any particular point is that that entire meta thing. Very much so. Yep. So let's talk Hanagram. For, uh, for for non-shippy people out there, often relationships are given words that connect the two uh, names. And Hanagram is Hannibal and Graham, as in Will Graham. It's such an amazing relationship. And from the point of view as a fangirl, it's, it's an amazing ship too. Like watching the two of them dance around each other is, I think the best part of the show and watching the kind of give and take between them is fantastic. So yes, (laughs) (laughs) it is definitely central to the show. And um, it's my understanding that it was meant to be central to the show. And I've heard a lot of read a lot of speculations and statements, and I'm actually going to stay away from those and just stick to the characters as we know them in Brian Fuller's interpretation. And so we have we have a very lonely psychopath yep. <laughs> in, the, in the Hannibal Lecter. You can feel sorry for him. Yes. So speak. Yeah. You know, he, he's, he's out there in his person suit. And, and then we have Will Graham, who is an absolute train wreck of a human being. And we, under, we, we are shown why he is how he is. Though it's interesting and it's curious that Fuller never, I, I think it was a deliberate choice on Fuller's part, of course, that's complete assumption. But given how nuanced and layered he was in every other aspect of the production, I have to, I have to believe that he made a deliberate choice to leave the subject of why Will left the New Orleans Police Department vague. Right. And why Will is such a crap shot. Pardon my language. Hopefully that was PG enough. That's fine. <laughs> um, yeah, he, he leaves. He's really vague. And yeah. we, we are told that he left homicide. We know that he applied to the FBI. We know that he failed the psych evaluation. So he was not allowed to become a, an agent, but he did become a teacher in the BAU. We have a little bit of a disconnect between, okay, well, how did he go from being a homicide detective in New Orleans to being a teacher and instructor even at Quantico for the BAU and being an acknowledged point of contact for a man like Jack Crawford. 
Right. So there's there's a hole there, and Fuller never fully addresses it. He never addresses why Will is considered an expert in his field, even though he's kept out of the field. So, you know, we, we just pick up and we move along. Maybe Fuller decided, you know, I, I, he didn't have time to go back for that story. But we see Will. We see what his present is. We see what it means for him to go out into the field and to really open his mind up to the way his imagination works and where it sends him in terms of the darkness. And we... We also see, and and Will kind of teases it up himself a few times. You know, he keeps he keeps saying that what he does is you know, okay. I've got an active imagination, but all I'm doing is interpreting the evidence that is there for anybody. You know, Will doesn't seem to think that what he does is particularly amazing or ingenious. He just it's a different way of looking at the evidence. So, you know, he he lives out by himself with seven dogs. He is not shy about saying he is not a social individual. He is arguably happy out in Wolf Trap. You know, there's nothing to show that he's not happy. It's interesting. You see his house. He doesn't really seem to have a television or any of the input of the modern world. His hobbies are his dogs, fishing, working on motors. You could extrapolate taking care of his house, taking care of his property. And that seems, he seems perfectly content like that. Jack drags him into this and puts him in front of Hannibal. And my interpretation is at the beginning that Hannibal is somewhat intrigued by Will, but mostly at that point in time, Hannibal's main... I don't even want to call it opponent, but his, his main sparring buddy, his, his his main companion, if you will, is Jack Crawford and the dance between Jack Crawford and the Ripper. And I think that he looks at Will and he sees an opportunity and he's like, OK, Jack's coming at me again. How am I going to work this one into my my picture as a whole? Because right. we know later down the road that he's got Miriam Lass, that he's holding on to her and that he's yanking Jack's chain. At, at first, I think Hannibal sees Will as, okay, this is another another piece on the board of my game against Jack. And things move along, and I think Hannibal kind of treats Will a little bit like that. He, he, he goes about, I don't want to say befriending him, but he brings Will in so as to fully understand him or work towards fully understanding him so he can use him again, you know, best position him against Jack. But he's, he's doing this, Will's lens and Will's that ability with his imagination is starting to turn towards Hannibal. And Hannibal is starting to see that he's found someone who is capable of seeing the world the same way he does without the person suit. And I think as season one progresses, Hannibal starts to see Will less and less as a piece on the chessboard and he starts to see him more and more as a potential genuine friend and he does come to like him and enjoy his company and Hannibal is shown to like intelligence to like someone who can think and and respect them, genuinely respect them. And he finds that more and more in Will, and even as Will starts getting the right scent, you know, that, that just de- endears him more and more to Hannibal. Right. But Hannibal is a psychopath. He is a narcissist. He is a survivalist. He knows he, what he has to do to Will in order to survive. And those plans are in motion. And he goes ahead and he lets those plans play Play out because you know his his plan was already in motion. He knew what he needed to do to discredit Will. Miriam also got close. I think he also genuinely respected Miriam. Part of why he didn't kill her. Part 
the other part being that he understood she could be used against Jack. And now he's got the same situation with Will. So he's got to destroy Will's credibility. He's in a position to destroy Will's credibility, Mm -hmm. as well as tinkering his mind. And on top of that, keep throwing Jack off the scent. And he pulls the trigger on all of those machinations at the end of season one. But then we see him in season two and we see that brilliant, simple shot of Hannibal sitting in his office, sitting in his chair, looking at the empty chair across from him. And it's such a simple shot, but it's so poignant because you can you see it all come together there. He's lonely. He did what he had to do, but or what he believed he had to do, but he's lost his friend and he wants his friend back. So you, you see Hannibal's whole game plan change. Well, simultaneously to this, you have Will, who at the end of season one, when he ended up broken completely, you know, he's he, Jack's turned against him. Alana's turned against him. Everybody thinks he's a murderer. They think he's capable of all these horrific acts. Hannibal's and he knows now he knows who it is. Nobody will listen to him. And he's, you know, he's completely broken. But rather than collapse within, he takes all of those sharp pieces and he rebuilds himself. And it's like, all right, you want to play? We'll play. <laughs> so, you know, you have you have Will on the other side. You have Hannibal, who's like, oh, I miss my friend. I want him back. And you have Will on the other side. I am going to end you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and now it's Will's machinations to, you know, make Hannibal's life difficult. Or kill him if that, you know, he can make that work. Right, right. So Will's the one who's now making all of the manipulations and he's working all of the other characters the way Hannibal did at the end of season one now it's will's turn to do all that and now instead of being a piece on the board he's kind of changed positions with jack Hmm. and now it's hannibal sitting across from will and the chessboard has jack and alana and chilton and these other characters sitting on it between the two of them interesting so there, you know, the, the progression of their relationship in that respect and in that, you know, the first half of the season where there's that back and forth. And Will is on the offensive. Hannibal is definitely playing defense. Now he's playing it very strategically and he's using all those pieces on the board. He's using Alana. Right. He's using Chilton. He's even using Abel Gideon. So is Will. Will's definitely using Chilton, definitely using Abel Gideon, using Beverly Katz. Yeah. Poor Beverly. Yeah. Beverly really deserve better just gotta say that yeah using jack and they're just back and forth but it, it's mostly will is the proactive and hannibal's being reactive at this point yes. until you, you get to that hannibal gets will out replants all the evidence so that will gets out and that whole setup and situation is beautiful it that's part of that's part of my favorite will is when he's leaving the hospital and he's telling chilton you are in his crosshairs and the only way you're going to survive is go to jack crawford as quick as you can and tell him everything you've been doing and chilton's like but you know that'd be career suicide and and will's like you don't have a choice yeah we're in zugzwang right now you are not winning this and you know walks out and 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 that wonderful line of, you know, he wants to be my friend. 
yeah. you know, Will recognizes it. So, you know, you get that, you get the accord over Randall Tear, or even Steven. Yep. My favorite line of the entire series. Just the way Hugh Dancy delivered that line was yeah. perfection. It's amazing because it, it is such a, it's a childish thing to say, but he says it with such gravitas that it's perfect. Yep. And again, it's another one of those, you know, very simple dialogue. Yes. Two words. Again, the same as Hannibal just sitting there looking at the empty chair across from him. Yeah. So now their relationship, they, they, they've done this to each other. They've zeroed out the sum. And now their relationship moves on to the next level. And it gets all confusing again for the audience. Yeah. Because we realize after the fact that this is a long, long game that Will and Jack are trying to trying to pull off to entrap Hannibal. Of course, in the time when you're watching those episodes and you're thinking, wow, we're, Will really is cracked in the head. Right. <laughs> <laughs> How could he do that to Randall Tear? You know, he's no longer a good person. Right. The attack on Freddie Lowndes, I'm, I'm sure everybody's split one way or the other. That's one of those instances where you're like, okay, as a as a moral human being, I should find this reprehensible, but it's Freddie Lowndes. Come yeah. on. <laughs> yeah. Most of the time with Freddie Lowndes, I'm like, how is she still alive? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, whenever possible, eat the rude. Hannibal, why is she still alive? Yeah. And of yeah, course, Hannibal- it's, it's because, you know, she's useful. But even... Even he, every single time he sees her, he says something along the lines of, that was rude. It's like, yes, it was. Why is she still there? Why is she still walking? Yeah. And I want to be clear. The the actress who played her played her perfectly. Oh, my God. So amazing. Yes. Yeah. Perfectly. Yeah. Amazing. But but you're right. It's like, how is Freddie still alive? And and you also look at Chilton. Yeah. Everything that Chilton goes through. Yeah. It's like, okay, Freddie and Chilton are kind of the same vein (laughs) yeah yeah they're both self-interested parties that will destroy other people just so that they you know they get their career advancement but But yeah Chilton oh my god I mean like (laughs) there are times when I I watch him like when he was testifying against Will in court and the way that he did it was just such a jerkish way to do it Yep. you know I watch that and I'm like oh my god this guy is terrible he deserves everything he gets and then he gets caught by the red dragon and everything that happens to children uh, yeah and then I'm like nobody nobody deserves that not even not even Frederick Chilton so yeah you know you you gotta wonder if they decided you know okay we really can't be quite that brutal to Freddie Lounge so we'll just up the ante on Chilton right (laughs) right right because he really oh (laughs) you know i'm right there with you it's like you see the things he does and where it comes from within and you're like you are a horrible little man and you're an abuser and you take advantage of people who are vulnerable and who can't say no to you and you know you're horrific and then you see the things that happen to him and it's like okay (laughs) it's like are the skills balanced are they tipped a little to the far side. Right, right. Can't quite figure this out. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, and that's one thing that the show does really well. They make you feel sorry for people who are horrible. And Chilton's definitely one of those. And Uh, again, I you know need to call out the brilliant, 
brilliant work that his actor did. Definitely. Yeah. Like uh, the scene between him and the red dragon when he's been like super glued to the wheelchair and he has this whole scene with him where, you know, the way that the actor did just the fear and Chilton trying to talk his way out of it as much as possible and everything. It's just, it's a beautifully acted scene. Just fantastic. Which I'm going to kind of jump from, you know, the beautiful exchange and well-written exchange of that to something that is probably the the quickest instance of dark humor uh-huh. in the show and props to Mads Mikkelsen is when Hannibal gets the lips in the mail yes oh my god get the one down before one takes the other away from him and, and the way that they show that is that, like, you know, Jack has come to see this, you know, this thing that he got. And he looks at it and he says, why is there only one? And then you have this brief flashback. <laughs> this brief that, flashback. Like, you know, half of a second of Hannibal, you know, slurping it up. And it's just, oh, it's so great. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, you know, he doesn't make a production of it or, or anything like that. He's nope. just, you know, oh, dip, yep. and down and the, the twinkle in his eye. Yeah, does it's like you know, th- that's one of those classic Hannibal machinations where he's he's gotten a chance to one eat children's lips, right? <laughs> two horrify Alana. Yep. Three just Hannibal, you ass. Right. <laughs> right. Like, get the trifecta there. Yes. It's just the perfect little minute. Yeah. Or not even a minute, like you say, like it's what three seconds worth of, of footage. Yeah. Well, just in general, like you know, we're talking about the actors. Mads Mickelson is amazing. I also was introduced to the whole you know Hannibal world by Silence of the Lambs. So for mm-hmm. the longest time, Hannibal was Anthony Hopkins, and they're making a TV show, and now Hannibal is this other guy. Can he ever be like you know my Hannibal? And now. Hannibal is Mads Mikkelsen. Yes. Which, um, one of the downsides to that, of course, is that, you know, like Hugh Dancy is British. And so when you hear Hugh Dancy actually talking as Hugh Dancy, he sounds completely different from Will Graham. But you hear Mads Mikkelsen in like any other role and you're like, ugh, it's Hannibal. I can't not see Hannibal. You know, like watching Rogue One where he's, you know, Galen Urso. And it's like, uh, I get it. You know, I know he's a good guy, but it doesn't he have like, you know, people parts? in his fridge somewhere <laughs> I mean you know uh, because I, I can't get past the voice I mean the voice is now the voice was Will's conscience talking to him and the voice is now always Hannibal for me so <laughs> poor Mads it's true um, he's so he's so marvelous too just as a human being he which really is is one of the great things about like you know the fandom of this show is how the actors have been so wonderful with the fans and have been just, you know, kind of fans themselves. Like I remember when the uh, when the show was canceled, Mads actually put like a YouTube video up saying that it's too bad the show is canceled. It was really great. And, you know, I love you guys. And hopefully we'll be able to bring this back at some point. So that's kind of a, a special thing about the fandom in general. Yes, definitely. You, you can see that in the interviews and in the gag reels yes. and uh, everything with the uh, with the, the cast as a whole. But definitely, Mads. Again, I'm going back to YouTube. I'm sorry. It's okay. There was this wonderful interview that he did. I think he was doing some con or another, and a young vlogger pulled him aside for some questions and, and a quick vlog interview. And you know, you can just see how patient and kind and respectful he is with his fans and that's yes. you know it's, it's always wonderful when the actors are like that it's so it true. makes it 
for me personally, brilliant actors, if they're, if the chemistry isn't there, if the, the humanity isn't there, I have a hard time buying the product that they're trying to sell. Right. Especially in between when it comes to their relationships. And we know that Hugh Dancy and Mads Mikkelsen have worked on a couple of projects together that they had known each other for, known each other, worked on a project, known of each other for a good 10 years before Hannibal. That probably helped and threaded in a little bit with the, the whole Hanagram. Right. Because, right. you know, they had that understanding of each other's work, you know, work direction, where they were coming from. They were in sync for what they were doing. And that helped a lot. It's and true. definitely was important in that relationship. And you're right. To kind of circle back to, to voice, Hugh Dancy is lucky because, you know, his, his normal speaking voice is completely different from Will Graham. Yeah. Though Dancy does an amazing American accent. It's, it's he really up. does. Yeah. M- Mads, when he's speaking English, you can kind of see when he's relaxed in interviews and he kind of relaxes his speaking tone and he picks up that lisp of his and, you know, he's just a little bit he's he's less grammatically on point with with his english so that when he is reading english lines he has to deliver them a lot of the way like he did with hannibal so he's kind of stuck <laughs> with his hannibal voice it's true at least in english watch him in something danish i'm sure he'll be completely different for you yeah yeah but he he delivers those lines so amazingly though mm-hmm. Like, you know, that's another thing about this show. And it's something that they get away with that a lot of shows wouldn't be able to, is that the dialogue is completely unrealistic. Mm -hmm. Just the the way that they talk and the illusions that that Hannibal in particular is constantly throwing into what he's saying. Nobody talks that way, like ever. So, you know, there is kind of the, the temptation to say, you know, well, nobody talks that way. And, you know, so it's a bad thing. But in Hannibal, it's totally a good thing. Just the way that everybody really has this very artful way of talking. That somehow just, it works. That kind of brings me to one of the questions that you threw out here about the the amount of comedians. Yes, yes. In the show. Because I've been thinking about that one since I read it. And there are a lot of conventional wisdom that you pick up through theater through shows and things so your your good comedians your good comedic actors something that they have in common is timing that's true they understand how to deliver words and how to to put them together with the correct facial expression and the timing and the tone to get maximum reaction. Right. Not saying that your top-notch dramatic actors don't. They do. But comedians can take it to another level. So they, they can, and especially when you're working in a show that has such a subtle, dark humor like Hannibal. You know, you kind of need that ability to to bring it across, not just with the words that are being said or the physicality of it, but, you know, the the tone of the words, the the expression in the eyes, everything, everything that is a comedian's craft is on display there. Now, Maz is not a comedian, not known as a comedian, but like his delivery when he's the scene in season two, the end scene in season two, where he has finally gotten the upper hand against Jack and he stabbed him in the neck and Jack's in the pantry. And you have the production and the direction of it. And Hannibal is almost stripped raw of his person suit and he is 
battering that door yes. with that animalistic power. And Alana comes in yes. and she's scared to death and she's got the gun on him. And here's Hannibal in this near rage. Well, it seems like a near rage with the way he's battering the door. And she, she asks, where's Jack? And he's just so quietly and so reasonably is like, he's in the pantry. Yep. <laughs> Why do you think I'm throwing myself against this door yes. with this knife in my hand? It is such yeah. an amazing moment there. Yeah. Yeah. But that was a layer of, you know, you had the direction in there. You had the blocking. You had the juxtaposition between the animalistic physicality of it to the softness of the word and delivery. But then you bring in somebody like Eddie Izzard. Yes. Oh, God. And I love yeah. Eddie Izzard. He's amazing. <laughs> yeah. And Eddie Izzard, if you think about it, if you go through real quick, physically speaking, he doesn't do a lot. You know, he's either in chains, restrained, injured, in a wheelchair, eating his own leg. His physical expression of, of comedy is reduced. It's true. Because you know, he, he, he's, very, he's very still in his blocking. So he's relying on his comedic timing, his tone, the nuances of his face as he's faced with his own leg to eat. Yep. <laughs> To bring across the absurdity of the entire situation, but then also his own psychotic approach to it, not broken down, having complete hysterics, because that's not, you know, he, he, he's a psychopath as well. Right. He can kind of appreciate what's been done here, while at the same time, I really don't want to eat that. <laughs> it's like, do I have to? It's like, yeah, you have to. It's like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and that whole back and forth and the, the dark humor, the dark comedy in that, you know, comes yes. through. He's got to deliver it all through his tone and his expression. Even Mads has some more physical, Hannibal's almost jaunty about the whole thing. It's true. You know, he's the host with the most. Right. Through the whole thing. He looks at this wonderful <laughs> food and aren't we going to have fun? And, and but as Eddie's a little bit more, you know, he's got to, he's got to bring that across. And so you've got, again, comedians to do this. And then another layer into it is this is an extremely dark and emotionally battering show. Yes. You know, let's call it what it is. It is hard on the audience. I can imagine it was hard on the actors, even as they were reading this material and being like, woohoo, this is good material. You know, it, it's still a lot for them to bring across. And I'm... I was on board when Criminal Minds first came on the air. And when Criminal Minds first debuted, you had Mandy Patinkin in the show. And Mandy was already known as an actor who really took on roles and sometimes became overwhelmed by them. I think he had been in a like a an ER type. Or yeah, it was like... Something else in CBS. Yeah, I remember that. I want to say it's Chicago Hope, but I don't think it was Chicago Hope. No, I think and it was he, before then. Yeah, so he had been in that and he had had to withdraw because he got overwhelmed so now he took on criminal minds and it's like oh mandy what were you thinking and he got through one and a half seasons two seasons and the same thing happened he just couldn't he, he couldn't take it he, he he couldn't handle you know he he just said you know it's just too much it's too dark and so he withdrew so you know mandy patinkin's a very good actor he's a very top-notch dramatic actor but the darkness of the material was just not something that he could deal with and i think that the levity we see in the gag reels with this cast and the back and forth that we see with the with the cast i think was 
important for them and the the mindset of a comedic actor like Scott Thompson. Uh-huh. I mean, you could see that Scott Thompson was definitely a wonderful little troublemaker on that set. Yes. <laughs> I say that with utmost respect and that it was a good thing. Yes. To get that set to break and, and you know break up occasionally and laugh and and keep things moving so that nobody got bogged down in the dark. Right. So right. I, I think it was a case of you don't typecast. So they needed these serious characters, but they didn't want to cast to type. Sure. And overwhelm your actors. So look into the comedic. You need them anyway for that timing. Right, right. Pull from that pool because there are some amazing comedic talents. Sure. Well, it really makes me wonder to what degree is comedy related to horror, like uses the same kind of structure, like maybe that in the same way that you really have to have the audience with you when you tell a joke and you need to, you know, take them with you through the steps of the joke in order for them to get the punchline. Maybe yep. that's kind of the same thing that you need to be able to do with horror, that you need Especially to be able nuanced, to nuance them. like what Fuller put together. Exactly. That in order to really get you into it, you need to have that kind of ability to hook and then bring you along until, you know, you get to the punchline, which in this case is, you know, the body that's been stuffed inside a horse or, you know, something like that. Your psychiatrist in your horse. Yeah. Your social worker in your horse. Oh, my God. Or in that horse. It was funny because I was uh, I was talking with. So the uh, the guy who plays the psychiatrist, I don't remember his name, but he's also a comedian. So I was I was talking with my husband about this and talking about that you had Scott Thompson and you had Eddie Izzard and you had Molly Shannon at one point as one of the bad guys. And then you had this guy. And I, was, I said, you know, he played a, a character on um, Community at one point, which is one of our favorite shows. But I was telling, you know, my husband that, hey, you know, he uh, he played this character and he was in the episode with the horse. And he's like, what episode was that? And I'm like, well, you know, the one that where, uh, you know, they find that this guy has put a woman's body inside a horse. You you don't remember that episode? And he's like, nope, I think I blocked it out of my mind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like you said, it's a hard show to watch sometimes. Mm-hmm. And the, uh, you know, the actors seem to have, you know, weathered it well. You saying that just brought something to the top of my mind is, and again, I'm going back to my theme of story within the story. I can't help wondering if that's also a very subtle nod from Fuller to the audience to go, don't take this so seriously. Hmm. Some of this, let's be honest, some of it is over the top. Hannibal's outfits. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) The language. You, You mentioned the language. Yes. Language is sometimes over the top. By layering in you know, these guest casting of key comedic figures, it, it's still another little flag of don't take it too seriously. Look at, you know, step back and, and look at how over the top this is. Some of the stuff that Hannibal gets away with is above and beyond, you know, what makes sense. So it's almost like saying, come with us, suspend your disbelief for a while. Here's this story to digest. Yeah, so to speak. it is a little, it, it is bigger than life. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Sorry, sorry, bad pun. Uh, <laughs> but it is bigger than life. 
And yes. don't forget that it is bigger than life. Yeah, yeah, it's true that th- there definitely is uh, a certain, I don't know, kind of a shield, I guess. I almost want to say a veil so that it doesn't come too close. You know, it yeah. isn't too realistic. It's it's just obviously, you know, this piece of art. It's kind of the difference between looking at war photography and looking at Goya's art when he was in the, yeah. the throes of dying from syphilis. So you have like, you know, what was it? Kronos that was while he was eating Jupiter. You have that really, that visceral painting. And seeing a visceral painting is a lot different from seeing a visceral photograph. Exactly. Yep. You know, you still have the artistry and kind of that little tiny bit of separation. Exactly. You have the artistry and Fuller is known for his artistry and he is an artist, no doubt. Oh, yeah. But I think if you look at it, there are just these little nods, these little winks to the audience. Not enough to completely break the fourth wall, but just enough of a little wink to be like, hey, remember to breathe. This is fiction. Right. Even for as powerful a character and as iconic a character as Hannibal Lecter has become since Silence of the Lambs. Yeah. And, you know, when you think about the the Silence of the Lambs movie, that's a lot more realistic. You yeah. know, you don't have the, the Baroque dialogue. You don't have the beauty in the killings you know you even like if you think of the scene where he he basically does the same thing to the guards as uh one of the the killers does flaying them and you know hanging them up and whatnot Mm -hmm. so there's a lot of stuff that you recognize from silence of the lambs that happens but also happens in a more artistic way uh, in hannibal and i was looking at the time so i don't want us to run out of time i gotta scamper back to hannagram (laughs) okay so we 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 got through to the midway through season two and they've kind of they're they're at their zero sum and will is running his long con with jack and hannibal is at that time legitimately thinking in terms of abigail and will and himself running off and you know little murder family yep and then we have the Oh, what do I want to call him? Oh, I want to call him a lot of things. <laughs> but the unifying enemy of Verger, who is yet another over-the-top character. So you have Will and... You have these episodes where Will and Hannibal are almost perfectly aligned against a much greater threat. And again, the social worker in the horse. We have another character who is an abuser, a bully, as well as, you know, a murderer and all those other horrible things. Someone who abuses those who are weaker and are more vulnerable to them seems to be a, a kind of a common theme of you're bad. And, you know, so we have that enemy and then they have Verger together so they are genuinely working together and working as a team and you can kind of see how it how the lines got blurred for Will. Yes. And he started especially going back to season one where he was telling Hannibal in good faith you know I felt powerful when I was able to deliver justice upon a bad person and you bring that forward and he's he's doing this while working alongside with Hannibal and the line is starting to get blurred for him it's really starting to get blurred and you can as we get to the the final episodes and the realization that Will is supposed to be working with Jack and Will and Jack are so far outside the law they're in they've got warrants for their own arrest and we see Hannibal realize that he's been played because he he smells Freddie Lowndes perfume on Will yeah and we see and kind of like with Alana later, we see Hannibal give Will a chance to come clean 
and Will has missed the cue and missed the realization, so he doesn't. He, he's, he's still trying to be what he feels is conventional good, even though he's outside the lines by a long shot with Jack. And we see Hannibal get his heart broken yep. and everything fall apart. And, and we, we see Hannibal show a couple of flashes of mercy. One, where he tried to get Will, tried to clue Will in. You have one last chance here, buddy. And then with Alana, where he tells her to walk away. And she doesn't. Alana, you should have. Yes. <laughs> Both of you them should, should have. have. Well, Will, Will, it was a bigger ask. You know, yeah. He was not just asking him to, to walk away. He was asking him to completely upend his entire life and you know embrace what he has always fought against. Alana, it was more simple of just turn around and walk away. You, know, right. you, you, have, you have no reason to be in this fight other than, okay, you feel like you need to call the police? Go out of the house, dial 911, keep walking. Right. That's all she had to do, and she didn't. So, you know, oops. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And then it all falls apart. And Will wakes up. We see him tell Jack that he did think about running. We know that he tried to compromise, which he shouldn't have, in telling Hannibal to run. That was really the only time in the entire series where we see Will completely misread Hannibal. That he would tell Hannibal to run and think that Hannibal would. Yeah, he didn't really realize the extent to which he was important to Hannibal. Yeah, he he didn't, you know, because it it didn't, it, it hadn't quite clicked for Will yet that the regard, the, the friendship could be becoming something more on Hannibal's side. Right. Like Will as a person wasn't really used to being important to people in general. You know, he was That's used true. to being used by people, um, you know, being used by Jack and to a certain extent being used by Alana. But he mm-hmm. was in a position where he really didn't understand what it was like to really be needed by somebody. So I think that that was was part of why he missed that, that he wasn't able to fully comprehend what it was that Hannibal was feeling for him. Yep. I think it's interesting the way you've just put that, that we see Will finally realize that when he is presented with his absolutely grotesque valentine right and you see it click then like yeah. he'd already been he, he'd already been motoring towards that conclusion you could see it in his conversation with mental abigail right right because if you, that that's an entire scene that's an entire podcast of itself is <laughs> that whole situation when you step back and you realize that that conversation is will within his own head and that abigail represents his Hannibal positive side and will I say with air quotes is the more traditional I'm a law enforcement person murderer bad side and Abigail is the one pointing out to him the surgical cut you know she says it about herself well we know Hannibal did not give her a surgical cut but he did give one to will right and then her talking about you know we could have been a family we could have been a group this is all Will's psyche telling him these things well and a part of Will's psyche that he's having trouble accepting that you know because the the line of the surgical cut comes from Chilton who comes to visit Will and tells him that you know they said that it was a surgical cut but Will wasn't able to accept that yep and you know no he couldn't have have wanted to save me he must have wanted to save Abigail 
And it, it isn't until they are in the chapel in Palermo and, uh, you know, he realizes that she's not actually there and she bleeds out and she dies that he's I, able to kind of. I would say I would say he's already realized that she's not real. My take on it is that where the audience learns this and, you know, we see her the the wound show up and she and she dies. I think that's the moment where Will accepts everything she's been saying. He yes. accepts back in that part of his psyche and you know realizes. I, I think that's where he realizes the, the things like this horrific body as a heart that Hannibal truly was heartbroken in the way Hannibal is, and that he did mean this much to Hannibal, and that they are conjoined at this point, and that he needs uh, you know because Will is in the same city is Hannibal. So you have to kind of ask yourself and go, well, why did he poof off? Why didn't he just keep trying to hunt Hannibal down? Right. Well, and, and he well, was aware of it too, that yeah, Hannibal was it, around. Yeah, exactly. He knew Hannibal was down in those catacombs, yep. but he deliberately goes off and it's because he's like, okay, now I need to, I need to know, I need to understand more. So, you know, he's like, I've accepted this now. I, I realize it. I've accepted it. Now I need to understand it. So he goes and and it's interesting that Hannibal gives him a you know a body as a heart, and in turn, Will finishes Hannibal's first bit of manipulation uh-huh. and gives Hannibal his firefly because he simultaneously he manipulates events so that Chiho is finally driven to kill, which is something that Hannibal kind of started her on the path, but then, well, we don't know why Hannibal never finished it, but he definitely started it, so Will finishes it, and then puts the guy's body like a firefly with a bunch of snails, and you know, that's very Hannibal Hannibal tribute, and the fact that he uses the Lecter wine bottles. Right. You know, we, we see that with Will, his, his gift back, and then they're back to their zero sum of who's going to kill whom. Right, right. And and both of them are kind of in a position where they have to kill the other one for their self-survival. Or at least yep. that's what they think. That's what they think. That um, Hannibal has to kill Will because he loves him and because that love is a weakness. A as vulnerability. Far as, right, right. Yep. Um, and that that's why he ate his sister uh, because, yep. you know, because he loved her. And uh, that made him vulnerable. And on Will's part, he has to kill Hannibal or else he's going to become Hannibal. So, yeah. To get away from him. Yeah. To, to, uh, to separate them. You know, he's, right. he's got to, he's got to kill, exactly, he's got to kill Hannibal. And then, you know, Mason Verger rolls back in and messes things up for everybody, but yep. that's okay. He <laughs> gets his comeuppance. <laughs> right, right. Well, that's actually, you know, the one good thing about Mason is that he, he, he's able to, like, you know, they were at an impasse there. You know, mm-hmm. one of them was gonna kill the other one, no matter what happened. And then Mason comes in and just chops that right in half. You know, he, he interrupts the, the spiral that would have ended up with one or both of them dead and instead they managed to I, I, think, be... I think we can pretty much call it that Will was at the losing end of that oh yeah situation. yeah oh yeah he was yeah Will was definitely Will was Will was about to get his brain eaten it's like yeah yeah, yeah. but instead of 
of focusing on each other and how they had to, you know, destroy each other, they are able to focus on Mason and destroy Mason. And then at that point, realize that they don't need to destroy one another. Right. Because if if they had still been in that mindset, like you said, when we see that scene where, you know, Hannibal has been busy with the hammer. Right. And he's standing there at the doorway and you can see, you know, he's like, all right, I can just walk away. Yeah. I can just walk away and it's going to be done. And Verger's going to end up dead because I've set Alana and Margot on that path. I don't have to care about Cordell. I can circle back and deal with him later. Will will be dead. It'll be all nice and tidy. And then the next thing we see is he's princess carrying Will. Yep. (laughs) away from the house and then they have their big touching moment of realizing they are a zero-sum game neither one's ever really going to come out on top of the other one always going to be a back and forth between them and you know will makes that play of look just take off i'm not going to hunt you i don't want to know where you are i don't want to know what you're up to don't send me a finger in the mail right (laughs) yeah (laughs) no boxes of chocolate just go and the look on hannibal's face when that happens is, you know, I mean, Hannibal is so great at being impassable. He gets branded and he, what he does is he has this faint smile on his face. But watching pain on his face when Will rejects him is amazing and really makes it completely understandable when Jack shows up and Will's like, he's not here. And Hannibal's like, yes, I am. Yes, I am. Right here. (laughs) Yep, I'm right here and you're going to know exactly where I am the whole time. I mean, it was a a great it's both a i care about you will and 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 it's declaration and it's also a screw you it's a huge screw you too so yeah it's a great moment right there it really is yeah and honestly i know that there seems to be kind of an argument back and forth and i don't know if brian fuller meant for it to be an argument or if he was trying to be this is how it is and it just didn't come across and it's one of those points where the producer is like oh this is how it'll be interpreted and fandom was like no no that's not how it's interpreted right those situations but you know later on where will makes his snarky comment that he knew that that if he rejected Hannibal Hannibal wouldn't go away you know reverse psychology on the psychologist and it's kind of like did you really yeah or are you just saying that at this point in time because you and Hannibal are exchanging you know you're yanking each other's pigtails right yeah it's it's hard to get a beat on that it's not outside the realm of possibility because Will was shown to be that mentally attuned and that mentally quick that you know he could have realized it and made a play like that you know he is a good fisherman as he says right right. but at the same time when you go back and you watch the way that scene is played out there is an, a genuine exhaustion to Will that he's just maybe yeah, for me personally, as an audience member, I could buy that Will played the card and his expectation is, all right, either he'll, Hannibal's going to take off and I don't ever have to deal with him again, or he's going to try to put this back in my face, in which case Jack's going to be here with the cuffs and I don't care which way it goes. Right. I think that it would have been a lot easier had they given us just a little bit of a hint when they looked at Will when he was standing on the porch watching him surrender. 
but just even that you're, yeah. you know the way it got played is a, a genuine you know will's like why are you lurking in my shadows right right it's like why are you doing this to me i told you again to run and you're still here yeah <laughs> It's like, did, did I stutter? What is going yeah. on here? What it's like, part of why do you keep missing? Right, right. So it's hard to, and especially given the way the scene where he's like, oh yeah, I did that on purpose because I knew you'd do this. They're back and forth leading up to that entire scene. They've been sniping at each other. Right. And this is the kind of childish sniping. No, you, no, you, no, you, you know? Yeah. So <laughs> it's, almost they've been childish with each other and just getting under each other's skin so it's like it's really hard to go okay was it genuine did he genuinely play the game that to that extent or is he just using that outcome to poke at Hannibal through the bars Hannibal's given him a hard time. Well, yeah. I mean, what is going on in Will's head when he approaches Hannibal again mm-hmm. is also kind of a, an interesting part of that because you watch him be like, well, I'm going to have to talk with him anyway, so I might as well, you know, do it now before I'm, you know, desperate about it. So, yeah, there's really the question of to what degree did Will want to come back? To what degree did Will want to step into Hannibal's orbit again? Yep. Again, hard to draw a beat on. It, it is. And it really doesn't. I think it's open to interpretation. And I wouldn't want to try to tell anyone to interpret it one way or the other. I think that entire area, you can interpret it uh, along with Will's decision to get married and try to have a normal life, lead a normal life. I, th- I think you can interpret that so many different ways. And I right. think you know, each audience member will bring their own experience and their own interpretation to that. I don't feel like Fuller steps in and takes control of the wheel again until the one of the last scenes with Bedelia and Will, where Will straight up asks, is Hannibal in love with me? Right. And Bedelia confirms and then fires back, well, how do you feel about him? And really puts Will on the spot with that. And I think you see Will, that's the moment where Will truly recognizes that can't live with him, can't live without him. You know, I am trapped in his orbit. And I'm just going to need, you know, I, I don't think I can save myself. So what does that mean? And then, you know, that comes forward to the last episode and that scene where, right. you know, Hannibal says, kill them all, save yourself. Will says, eh, maybe I'm not worth saving. And he's kind of come to his end game. And if you look back and you look at like Jack's plan, which is totally off the rails. Yeah. <laughs> Again. Wow. Yeah. Again. Jack's Jack plans kind of- just. They, they they just don't work out very well. They really don't. Yeah. If you look at Jack and Alana's plan, which is, you know, complete scorched earth, and then you look at how everything finally executes, you, you see in conversations between Will and Jack that Will has, fi- especially after that conversation with Bedelia, that Will has now playing his own plan. Right. Not Jack's plan, not Hannibal's plan. Will is playing his own game, and he's playing Jack, and he's playing Hannibal, and he's playing all sides to get that. That confrontation with Dollar Hyde, that confrontation at the house. I think an interesting discussion point and then another point that would be open to interpretation, and I'm sure we could sit here and make another two hours discussion out of, <laughs> is what would have happened had Dollar Hyde, if he had not stabbed Will and Will had been able to pull his gun and actually shoot him, right. you would hope that point blank Will could manage to hit something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
and you know, if Will had managed to shoot him yep. before they got into that, you know, that horrific, what would have happened then? Right. If they hadn't been on that cliffside, if Will hadn't had that perfect storm of circumstances to to take himself and Hannibal off the cliff, what would have happened? Well, what was Will's end game at that point? What right. was he thinking was his end game? That's a really good question. And there's really, like I said, it's another area where I think it's open to interpretation for for everyone based on their experiences. Right. And based on what they what they bring from the show. I don't think there is any one clear cut answer. And I think that he might not even really have known. Yeah, like, he might you not know, have. He he had kind of the the vague idea that he might die. And, you know, he, he actually had that vague idea at the end of season two as well. I'm trying to remember who he talked to. It might have been Freddie talking about how he might not survive Hannibal. So, yeah. So I think that that's I think that he really just went into it not sure what was going to happen not sure of what dollar hide was going to do and then you know finding himself in that position where he has become Hannibal they have shared a kill they are both covered in blood and he realizes now how beautiful it is and he sees the way Hannibal sees in a lot of ways and part of his response to it is you know not only to destroy Hannibal but to destroy himself yep I would definitely agree with you there I would also maybe re- stepping back a few steps where Will was standing at the window and you can kind of extrapolate that he knows Dollar Hyde's out there. So maybe his end game is, you know, I'm going to stand at the window, Dollar Hyde's going to shoot me and, you know, then come after Hannibal. Hannibal's going to have that heads up and whoever wins, right? <laughs> you know, I'll be dead and I don't care. But then Hannibal changes their positions. He pushes Will back away from the window right. and then he puts himself in the window and you have that line, you know, no greater love than for a man to lay down his life for a friend. Yes. And now Hannibal has, you, you can't, you can read that as Hannibal has deliberately driven Will away from the window out of danger and put himself between Will and danger. Yes. And, you know, because he does love him. Yes. <laughs> that inconvenient compassion. Yep. And that changes the landscape of Will's plan again. And Will is just winging it from there. And then you get to everything you said that they do end up sharing the kill with Dollar Hyde and Will lets go of the last of his reservations and embraces the fact that he is the same. I don't want to I don't want to say even say monster, but, you know, he like you say, he is Hannibal. Right. And in order to destroy this, he's got to destroy them both. Right. And then over the cliff they went. And to bring that to your kind of last question. Yep. (laughs) Yeah. How do I feel about the way season three ended? I think that in its own way, season three, and if you're a Hanagram fan, Uh hello, yes. Yes. uh, (laughs) I think it ended as best as it could. Yeah. Because you have that moment where they're working together. They worked together. They are embraced in each other's arms. They are as physically close, mentally close, emotionally close as they have ever been throughout the series. Yep. And their quote unquote ending is left up to interpretation. You can, you know, if you want to say they died, you can have that closure. If you want to say, 
hey, they survived. You know, you saw the two chairs along with Bedelia. That means they're alive. Listen to the song. It says, I will survive. Can have that interpretation. And fan fiction can live forever. (laughs) This, yeah, this is part of why I was initially on the fence about a season four. Uh Because anything that gets Hugh Dancy and Maz Mikkelsen on my screen working together again is aces in my book. They're just such a fun team. And add in add in Lawrence Fishburne, Scott Thompson, the whole crew. I'd love it. But from a storytelling perspective, you have this almost perfect accord, this moment of, of perfect accord between these two characters. But from a storytelling perspective, in order to have tension, you'd have to mess with it. Right. So it's like you're either going to, to tear it all apart again in order to build it back up or tell the story, have tension or something. You got to go something different. And I read an article that said that Fuller was when he discusses a fourth season, he talks about something that's a combination of Inception and another movie, Something Angel. So if I was to speculate, Uh purely speculate with what he did with Will Graham's character, how he changed the character that Harris put together, how he wrote Will's arc start to finish, what he's got in the universe. And let's face it, this is Hannibal's universe. At the end of the day, these stories are Hannibal's stories. I would say that Will's story is done. Hmm. And that it would make sense that that Will perishes in the fall, but that Hannibal carries him the way Will carried Abigail. Huh. So Will would basically take up residence in Hannibal's mind. Exactly. Will would be a member, would be in Hannibal's mind palace. And I could see Fuller pulling something like that off. That's really interesting. And I would be on board for that kind of approach. Now, I think if a season four went forward, regardless of which way Fuller goes, I'm going to wait till the entire season is complete before <laughs> I watch it. But um, yeah, I could see that because then he could bring back these these actors and these characters that were so strong for this storytelling, but move it forward in, I can't believe I'm going to say this after all the conversation we had about suspension of disbelief, right, right. but move it forward in a logical, I'm not going to say believable way, in a logical way. Sure. That makes sense for the story as a whole. Because, and I'm going to circle back here, uh, they talked a little bit about Beverly Katz's death, but he spoke about, scratch that. I'm going to jump shows here. Okay. Person of interest. Okay. I cannot pronounce her name and I am not going to risk (laughs) mispronouncing it because she is a fantastic actress, Miss Henson. Okay. Who played Joss Carter. All right. More spoilers here. When her character, because she was a central character in the show. Maybe I shouldn't tell you this if you haven't seen it. It's okay. Well, she was a very central. You had the three main leads, and she was one of the main leads. And they told her story from season one through midway through season three, and then she died. And a lot of people were like, what? What did you do? Why did you do this? And, you know, the the answer, well, there were a lot of back and forth. But the ultimate answer was, you know, her story was complete. And that's where I feel Will is. I mean, yes, we could see him busily, Hannibal, killing and harvesting his goodies for his dinner parties and Will off positioning the bodies the way he likes to, since that seems to be his design. But ultimately, I think you'd end up season four with Will dead regardless. So why not start it and go, you know, that he's now a permanent residence in Hannibal's psyche. Interesting. Hopefully there will be a season four because pretty much no matter what happens, I totally want to see it. So... (laughs) 
I'm still kind of on the fence, uh, but it would yeah. be, it would be wonderful. Like I said, it would be wonderful to see those actors pick up those, those characters again and the artistry of the entire production. Yes. That entire cast and crew were phenomenal. It's true. And it's, it's such powerful TV. It, it would be more lovely to see, see more. It's true. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. It's been it's been fun. It's been a wonderful conversation. I think we've de- definitely brought the geek. Thank you for listening to the Hopeless Fancast. You can follow us on Twitter at Hopeless Fancast, on our Facebook page, The Hopeless Fancast, and find all of our episodes on hopelessfancast.com. If you enjoy our show, please consider becoming a patron. Go to patreon.com slash thehopelessfancast to find out more. Thank you, and we'll see you soon.